Hi, how are you doing? I'm standing at the door of my cottage, ready to go out for an evening walk, and Scout is sitting next to me, being as good as she knows how to be. But, unfortunately, she can't come out with me this evening because I'm going out round the village looking for glowworms and I don't want her crashing around in the undergrowth. So I'm going to have to send her back to her wicker basket. Scout, go to bed. Good girl. Wait. My name's Melissa Harrison. And I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Through summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 17 of The Stubborn Light of Things. We must do something about that gate. what used to be the village post office and past what used to be the forge and I've come into the churchyard and from this high point I can see past the village houses including my own to the fields beyond and last night they began bringing in the oilseed rape Do you remember at the beginning of this podcast it was bright yellow and then it turned green and then it dried and now it's been brought in and those fields are stubble. But I'm not in the churchyard for the views. I've come because I'm looking for glowworms. There are several sites in Suffolk where I'm pretty sure I could find them and I did see one last year at one of those sites but the fact is they turn up in all sorts of places you don't always have to go to a nature reserve to see them my sister's ex-partner had one on his patio a couple of years ago and yes I did verify it I've seen a photo and my neighbour saw one right in the centre of the village a few weeks ago they're very short-lived so I'm unlikely to be able to find that one again But I'm looking at the churchyard and thinking, that's a great bit of habitat. It's not sprayed or cultivated. It's a warm evening, as you can hear. Some other people are out enjoying it too. Glowworms are thought to be declining and we're not really sure why. Our use of pesticides is likely to be part of it. The larvae feed exclusively on small snails. The adults don't feed at all. 
they don't move around much either because they haven't got a lot of energy. The females that glow are wingless. And the males do fly, but quite reluctantly. That means that colonies are quite static. And that's something that makes them vulnerable, of course. But they can be seen around this time of year, around midsummer, just after dark. The female will glow until she's mated. And then she turns out her lamp, lays her eggs and dies. And they're clever. They can, if it's a bad snail year, very, very dry, for instance, the larva can delay pupation until a better year. So sometimes you don't see any for a couple of years. It doesn't mean they're gone. They'll be back. You can hear the last swifts of the day. Still feeding overhead. And they'll be gone very soon, perhaps by next week's podcast. The adults leave first, just after the young fledge each year. And the young juveniles hang around a little bit longer. And then take off thousands of miles to the Congo Basin, a place they've never seen before. My guest this week is Jules Howard. He's a zoologist. He's a Guardian contributor. He's an educator. And he's the author of several books, including The Brilliant Sex on Earth and Death on Earth. And his most recent one, The Wildlife Pond Book, which, frankly, you all need if you're at all serious about wildlife. Jules and I have been friends for some years now. Um, The first time we met, he took me fossil hunting, and we found all sorts of incredible things, like crinoids and griffea and ammonites and belemnites and a suspected shark poo, coprolite. Um, And in return, I took him mudlarking, and we found pretty much nothing at all. Jules is joining us from North Northamptonshire, where he's doing a bit of pond dipping. I'm at the edge of the pond, and it's that time of year where I spend a lot of my time rootling around amongst the reeds. And the water level's really low, and it's exposed all the roots. And in those roots, just you can see about two or three, are lots of froglets. And, in fact, I'm going to try and coax one onto my pond-dipping tray. There we go. He's about the size of a raisin. He is just the most spectacularly awesome thing. And he's waiting... I say he. He or she is waiting for the summer rain. I think we do some tonight. And that kind of ignites, if you like, opens up a behaviour in them just to basically run basically to walk as far as they can so it's like you know rain is the ingredient for their brains to kick off I used to do a lot of um, pond dipping with schools and I often you know you see the, the the life cycle of a frog a poster you know a poster of the life cycle on classrooms and I always felt like this stage was massively massively simplified that you have an animal who is you know, perfectly suited to its aquatic way of life. It's brain reshaping, like a caterpillar in a pupa, 
reforming to give this animal a sensory uh, suite, I suppose, for terrestrial life. So, you know, the eyes don't just sort of sit on the side of the head like a tadpole, they're actually physically moving on right onto the top of the head. And, you know, the mouth, what was once a kind of sucker, becomes this giant, wide set of jaws. And even quite simple little eardrums that they acquire in this stage. And then the fact that, you know, their arms kind of punch out from their bodies and they have this giant set of legs. It is just wonderful. I mean, this was... Frogs traditionally have always been quite a uh, a model of um, animal behaviour, a sort of model animal to study. And in fact, in the, in the 50s and 60s... Um, a lot of scientists looked at their quite simplistic behaviours. Like I said, the rain comes and they make their move. And the way they hunt and the way they eat follows these really simple patterns. See the prey, lunge at it, use the eyes to squash the food down the throat, wipe the lips. Like all frogs, including froglets, make these movements. And in fact, there are software packages, uh, kind of online frogs, that, you know, walk around and behave like real frogs do. Some people say that reduces frogs talking like that. I don't see it like that. I see uh, really simple, simplistic design, energy-saving design, if you like, and to have that kind of interpretation of the world. I, I guess I feel ever so slightly jealous in times like these where there's so much going on in the human landscape, these animals eloquently change and navigate and make their moves across the world, but only when the rain comes. Well, I've been walking around the village lanes as it gets darker and darker, looking at the hedgerows, and I've just passed the tennis courts and the bottle bank, and now... I'm at the recreation ground, you know, where the rabbit warren is. It's really interesting what Jules was saying about tadpole metamorphosis. Made me think of a study that was done into the transformation of caterpillars into butterflies, which showed that you can teach caterpillars things um, using aversion so you can make them averse to particular stimuli. And when they turn into a butterfly, they'll retain that memory, despite the fact that in the intervening time, they've pretty much melted down into like the DNA soup and then reconstituted themselves. It makes me think about knowing what it is to know and what it's like to be a glowworm. What do glowworms know? I suppose what do any of us know, really? There's three kinds of knowing, I think. There's um, cognition through our senses. And there's a, a fantastic film about what it's like to have changes to your senses. It's called Notes on Blindness. And it's about the theologian John Hull, who lost his sight. It's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. And it's about um, 
what was taken from him, but also what was given to him. Then there's the intellect, reason. It's another way we know things. And I think it's really um, overemphasised in a lot of Western cultures to the detriment of other kinds of knowing. And then there's gut instinct. And that's a really hard one to get in touch with and to trust. Partly because I think we squash it out of kids because we want them to fit in and be polite. We make them do things they perhaps don't want to. There have been times in my life when I've made bad decisions, even though I did actually have a gut instinct that it was wrong, but I didn't know how to listen to it. And sometimes it's hard to tell a gut instinct apart from a fear. You know, you might, you might talk yourself out of a job just because you're lacking confidence. How do you know what's a gut instinct and what's something that you should override? There have been other times when I have listened to my gut and it's served me really well. I always think of um, an incident a few years ago when I was on, on a train and a man got in, sat near me, and there was nothing about him that I could put my finger on at all except that I was filled with dread. And I got up and got off at the next station, even though I didn't know where I was. I think that sometimes gut instinct is actually its based on all sorts of things that are real, but they just come via our subconscious, so they're harder to quantify. This week's poem is by Sean Hewitt, and it's called Evening Poem, from his recent collection, Tongues of Fire, published by Jonathan Cape. It's an absolutely staggering collection. Honestly, it, it really stopped me in my tracks. The title of Sean's collection, Tongues of Fire, is the name of a fungus. And he writes, It came for me to speak of some boundary I was working away at, without at first being fully conscious of it. I wanted to explore the places where nature, the body, and something beyond the body meld together, speak to each other, or of each other. Where does matter come from? Where does the physical world start? And where does something beyond the physical, observable world begin? Evening poem. First, the clatter iron blackbird, its fanatical shuddering in the magnolia. Dusk, and the garden is reassembling, calling its sparrows home. And what a voice racket under the orcuba, doors closing too, and each sparrow an iron filing sweeping the field lines of the garden. I set out 
in the last warmth and watch it all come to rest. The light falling, the thrushes settling in the sycamores at the far end of the lawn. How each tree lowers itself under a new weight. And I hold out for a while for everything to darken, for the birds to stop singing, as though I am teaching myself again to bear it. When I'm on my way um, to the playground, where the swings are, where I sometimes throw the ball for scout, to check there for glowworms because it's got lovely long uncut grass around the edges but I'm just passing a hedge bank which is full of crickets crickets are the ones that sing at night and these I think are dark bush crickets they do these little chirps. We've got several species of cricket here and I think, someone will correct me, but I think they're all non-native. They're doing very well um, because of climate change. Warmer temperatures are what they need for their eggs to hatch and they've slowly been spreading across the country from the southeast. If these were speckled bush crickets, it would just be very faint ticks. And the oak bush cricket doesn't sing, it just stamps its feet. And I don't think we can hear it very loudly. The long-winged conehead, which I love, brilliant name for a band, which was first recorded here in 1945 and is now quite widespread, makes a faint, continuous chuffing. Sorry, I find that very funny. Uh, the great green bush cricket makes a harsh and loud continuous sound, so it's not him. The Rosal's bush cricket makes a high buzz like a power cable. Hmm. Now I'm going to say what we're hearing here are the regular chirps of dark bush crickets. So I'm tiptoeing around wearing dark clothing, bent over, peering at the ground. <laughs> I haven't already got a reputation in this village for eccentricity. I will soon. I keep seeing little white things, even though I know the, the light of a glowworm is green like a little LED. My eye keeps being drawn to white things. And when I look directly at them, these little white glimmers, they disappear because my eye's blind spot moves over them where the optic nerve passes out of the back of the eye. It's like trying to look at a star in the sky, you have to look off to one side to see them. But none of them are glowworms anyway. Starting to suspect 
Wow, swarm. All looking. And no finding. I had my most memorable glowworm experience four years ago this month. And I wrote about it in my Times Nature Notebook. 17 miles west of central London's loud and strobe-lit clubs, my Friday night was proving surprisingly exciting. Looking across Frey's Farm meadows as dusk fell, I said, I'd like a bar now, now, please. And within a few minutes, one materialised, drifting low over the tall and tangled grass on silent wings. It was an electrifying moment, yet the evening was about to improve. Less than half an hour later, the eleven of us were crouched amid the crepuscular vegetation, peering down and laughing, exhilarated, wonderstruck. There's one. Look there, amazing. There's another over here, come and see. What we'd come in hopes of seeing were only some small, odd-looking invertebrates, but it turns out that few things engender joy, like the sight of glowworms lighting up the midsummer night. Bright-scattered, twinkling star of spangled earth, the peasant poet John Clare called them, and they really are like little stars. The light emitted by the abdomen of the female is green, cool and astonishingly bright. Like the constellations, they do seem distant, their otherworldly glow very concentrated and illuminating almost nothing of the grass and leaves to which they cling. An animal that can make its own light. What an incongruous and utterly bewitching thing. Our guided walk included three twenty-something women and a couple of local lads, one seventeen, one twenty-two, who had heard about it on Twitter. Some hadn't realised we had glowworms in the UK. Many people believe them to be an American phenomenon, the firefly is a relative, or assume they must be long extinct. Numbers have declined since the days of John Clare, but particularly at chalky sites rich in the snails their larvae eat, they can still sometimes be found. Frey's Valley Local Nature Reserve is a precious fragment of urban wildness, a mosaic of protected meadows, ancient woodland, waterways and flooded gravel pits bordered by a golf course and the Grand Union Canal. Volunteers have been clearing scrub and invasive goats' roo from the old railway embankment that bisects it so the glowworms there can flourish and Friday night's count proved their hard work is paying off. All the more dismaying, then, to learn that this magical place is under threat from plans to lay an access road for HS2 across it. Surely another route can be found. And I'm at the far side of the um, children's play area. And I can look back from here at the village. I can see the church tower square with flint just emerging from the trees and the houses yellow lit. The other thing I'm keeping my eyes open for, apart from glowworms, is hedgehogs, because I know they're about. Not only did I find a hedgehog poo 
by my front gate this morning. I saw one a couple of nights ago. I almost trod on it and it rolled up. And in the half light, I wasn't even sure what, what, what I was seeing. It's been a good few years since I've seen one. Cheer me up no end, I can tell you. Everyone loves hedgehogs, and yet it looks like we could lose them within our lifetimes. And that is hard to come to terms with, but they do well around here. Ipswich has a fantastic thriving population, and they have a hedgehog officer whose job it has been for the last few years to look after them and a brilliant job they've done too well everything pale is catching my eye from moths to white clover flowers to stray feathers but it's my wanting to see one that's interfering. Were I to see one now, I then instantly would overlook the white clover flowers and the moths and the feathers. Because I haven't, my brain is telling me, what if, what if, what if? Before we hear Gilbert White's diary entries for today, July the 27th, I need to tell you that we've just had his 300th birthday. It was on July the 18th. And all sorts of um, suitably distanced events and things went on, some of which were incredibly interesting and cheering and lovely. And you can find all of his birthday celebrations online at Gilbert White's house org.uk and then if you click on GW300 July 27th 1769 some grapes have got pretty large finished cutting the small hedges July 27th 1773 some wheat seems to be blighted July 27, 1778. Few turnips are yet sown. They were prevented first by the dry weather, then by the rain. July 27, 1780. Tortoise eats gooseberries. July 27, 1782. Vast rain. Swallows' nests with their young washed down the chimney. July 27th, 1783. My China hollyhocks, after standing a year or two, lose all their fine variegated appearance and turn to good common sorts, being double and deeply coloured. July 27th, 1787. Rooks in vast flocks return to the deep woods at half past eight o'clock in the evening. July the 27th, 1788. 
we have had a few chilly mornings and evenings which have sent off the swifts. I have remarked before many times how early they are in their retreat. Surely they must be influenced by the failure of some particular insect which ceases to fly this early, being checked by the first cool autumnal sensations, since their congeners will not depart these eight or nine weeks. July the 27th, 1790. Hops are infested with aphids and look badly. Well, I've looped around past the village pub and past the site of the old windmill and come back into the village via the village notice board and the red post box and the village sign and I've just passed my neighbour's house where the two little girls have made a fairy garden on their front verge there's no street lights here so it's really dark but I can see it via their porch light and outside all the village houses with their yellow lit windows the bins are standing sentinel because it's bin day tomorrow and sadly I haven't seen a single glowworm. I'm just pausing in my front garden for a moment and looking out at what I can see of the village behind me. Thinking about how much is visible how much is hidden in the dark. It brings to mind that film I mentioned, Notes on Blindness. There's a moment where John Hull talks about the experience of hearing rain fall as a blind person. It's always stuck with me. I quoted it in a book a few years ago. He says, if only there could be something equivalent to rain falling inside, then the whole of a room would take on shape and dimension. I should also say that this is an experience of beauty. Instead of being isolated, cut off, preoccupied internally, you're presented with a world. You're related to a world. You are addressed by a world. Why should this experience strike one as being beautiful? Cognition is beautiful. It is beautiful to know. I'm gonna go in and see Scout. See if she's been on the sofa. <laughs> Hello, good girl. Come here. Come here. Good girl. Sit. Oh, waggy tail. Go on then. Go to bed. Good girl. <laughs> 